This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. I'm Martin Strong, and we're getting older. That's true, uh, true of everybody, I guess. But at the same time, we're living longer, and that's putting a lot of pressure on our retirement plans. So making sure we're ready and efficiently planning our estates is more important than ever. I'm Martin Strong, and on Vancouver Consumer this afternoon, we'll get some great advice from the folks at Macmillan Estate Planning. That's coming up. But first, some of the consumer news headlines from the past week. Royal Bank economists are warning that Canada is headed toward a recession next year. RBC says soaring food and energy prices, rising interest rates, and ongoing labor shortages will push the economy into a moderate contraction, which it predicts will probably be short-lived. The bank accepts, expects rather the jobless rate to reach 6.6% next year and predicts that household spending will slow down as higher prices, interest rates, and unemployment hit home. Predictions of a fall COVID-19 wave are making another booster vaccine kind of likely, but there are still a lot of questions about how the virus will continue to evolve and what protections a new shot could offer. Several vaccine manufacturers are racing to develop formulas that take into account the more infectious Omicron variant which is now driving cases. Currently, available COVID vaccines are monovalent, meaning they are aimed solely at the original coronavirus. But there are expectations that a so-called bivalent shot might be able to target a potential future surge as the flu season sets in. And lots of stories about nightmares for travelers at the airport. And now it's going to affect how pets fly as well. Air Canada is enacting a drastic change in their pet policy as it works to improve the efficiency of its operations. The airline has announced it will not be taking any new requests for pets to travel in the baggage hold of its planes again until mid-September due to longer than usual delays. Airlines and airports across the country Uh, have struggled with massive delays in flights and baggage pickups because because of a sharp rise in uh, travelers. The move by Air Canada comes after a bunch of reports of dogs, cats, and other pets, which were left in carriers just sitting among the other baggage for hours and hours. And things are picking up when it comes to travel. Europe is seeing a lot more tourists this summer in Pamplona, Spain. One of Europe's big tourist attractions was back up and running. The Running of the Bulls was held this past Thursday for the first time in three years. It's all part of Pamplona's San Fermin Festival, which has previously been canceled uh, due to the pandemic years. So how did it go on Thursday? Well, no one was gored, but several runners endured knocks and some hard falls. The six bulls charged through the Spanish city streets in around two minutes and 35 seconds. The Pamplona hospital reported that six people needed treatment, including an American with a broken arm. And that's the traditional running of the bulls. And as usual, it is followed by the traditional calling of the ambulances. This is Vancouver Consumer. I'm Martin Strong, and coming up, it's a look at estate planning. And it's not just for really old people or just for the really rich. 
It's for everybody, and it could save you and your family a ton of money in the long run. We'll talk to the folks at McMillan Estate Planning when Vancouver Consumer continues on CKNW. Welcome back. I'm Martin Strong. And uh, back on April 7th, the Government of Canada released its 2022 budget. And beyond the uh, glossy surface of things like, uh, for example, help for first-time home buyers and tax incentives for investing in clean energy, the budget outlined some substantial moves that will really impact wealthy Canadian families, many of whom are first-generational wealth and small business owners. And to talk about these changes and how they could affect you, Sherry McMillan from McMillan Estate Planning has joined us as we look at what wealthy families can do to proactively plan for the future. Hello, Sherry. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for the welcome, Martin. We're very delighted to be with you today. And off the top, I should mention that Macmillan Estate Planning has some virtual seminars coming up. Uh, there's one this Wednesday, July 13th, 5.30 Pacific Time. And they have another one Wednesday, the 27th of July, also at 5.30, and then one on August 17th at 5.30. But this Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. is the latest one. Go to macmillanestate.com to register for that. You can also give them a call at 1-833-266-6464. But Sherry, I want to ask you about the budget from last April. And when a budget first comes out, it gets a lot of press and people give their interpretations of it. Certain parts of the budget get all the headlines and that's what everybody talks about. But it takes a while to really delve deep and see what's really in there. There's a lot of reading. So now that you've had a few months to really digest it all, what aspects of this budget really stick out to you from an estate planning point of view? Well, I tend to agree with you uh, at the outset when you were saying that it is a bit glossy at the first instance, because when you read the budget, um, you know, it's framed to sound very positive, of course. And most families were bracing themselves for probably a good smack in how much income tax would be increased into the future. But they were much more subtle about it in the budget itself. And so our team has been working uh, rigorously to reinterpret what is being said there and what the consequences will be for the decades ahead. And the first thing that I want to point out is, although... We were waiting for a capital gains increase, potentially. A lot of us were thinking that was going to come down the pipeline. Right. It didn't. And I think, you know, in my experience, there's a, a clear indication, though, in the budget release of where the government, you know, right now we have the Liberal and NDP coalition and how they're banding together um, to, you know, ultimately tax the top 1% of the Canadian wealthy families. And it's hidden in the budget, not in the first few pages, but as we go further down. And so prior to the budget release, they were chattering about wealth tax, if you recall, about increase in capital gains tax. So these were all the um, forecasts that we as tax planners were wondering if they were going to come about. But they've labeled it differently. But don't be confused, it's coming. And it's going to be coming, they say, this fall. Um, and they're going to be releasing more details in the fall. So rather than the traditional wealth tax that uh, was being explored, what they're going to be doing is a more stealth tax, and they're calling it basically a minimum tax on the wealthy. 
And they haven't given us much detail in this budget, only to say that it will be coming into place um, probably this fall. So that's a warning shot from our right. in the office. Um, they're giving us warning. It's coming. They're going to let us get through summer, and then they will release all of the details. Now, we actually have an example, uh, Martin, of alternative minimum tax in Canada right now. And what it does is it says that if you um, sell a particular asset and the government feels that you're not going to pay enough tax, what they'll do is they'll overtax you in the year you sold it. And if you don't uh, actually owe that tax, then they'll re reimburse you over a seven-year cycle. But the trick is you have to have income in the next seven years in order to get that income tax you overpaid back. And so you can see how this is quite tricky because presuming you're, you know, somebody shifting into your retirement phases of life, and let's say you're taking uh, a buyout or you're selling your business, well, after you do so, you may not have a lot of income the next seven years, and so you might actually overpay in that particular instance and have that high taxation never to be returned to you. And so that's what we're going to be facing in the fall is an understanding of how they're going to basically employ this. So where I think our team is suggesting this has direct impact on many of us is potentially a lot of us that do own stocks and shares, um, and that's a lot of us that are shifting into the retirement phase of our life. We finally have created affluence so that we can enjoy it, and now we may have this consequence coming down the pipeline. And the second group is, of course, business owners, because business owners one of the opportunities they have is in their exit plan into retirement is they often sell their businesses. And so the alternative minimum tax could be very, very painful um, in that. And we think, obviously, with the coalition that we're facing right now, there's a huge chance with the NDP you know, pressuring Trudeau to employ some higher taxation on the wealthy that it could be much more punitive than even potentially a capital gains tax change. Interesting. And another example of why many of us need to get good expert advice, which is what you get from Macmillan Estate Planning. You can go to their website, macmillanestate.com. And if you go to the website, uh, you can register for their upcoming seminars. They have one this Wednesday, July 13th at 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. And you can get uh, all your questions answered. They also have one coming up on the 27th, a Wednesday at 5.30 and Wednesday, August 17th at 5.30 Pacific time. And as I say, go to macmillanestate.com to register for those. You can also give them a call at one 266 6464 and uh, Sherry McMillan, uh, it's interesting to me how terminology is changing around this stuff, like wealth tax and what that means, and a, quote, minimum tax on wealthy Canadians. How is that, the minimum tax on wealthy Canadians, how is that going to work in practice? Yeah, so it's people? a fantastic question, Martin. And I think we always say sometimes the budget is undercover. <laughs> You know, the average person will just read the headlines or the larger points and think, oh, it doesn't sound too bad. And, you know, it is a bit of a political play to not outright say we're going to tax the wealthy. And if they say, for example, we're going to tax capital gains, 
everyone will be upset because everybody understands what capital gains are. But if they say we're going to introduce an alternative minimum tax on the wealthy, then all of a sudden everybody has questions because they don't really know if that has application to them or not. Um, And yet it can just be uh, semantics. It can just be a change of language. So alternative minimum tax can mean that even on, let's say, your stock portfolios, so if you're selling um, your stock portfolios and traditionally you'd pay about 24 or 25% income tax, well, all of a sudden, if there's an alternative minimum tax that you can't pay such a low rate of tax if you have more than, let's say, $100,000 of income, they can impute that you must pay 50% tax. Well, we wouldn't call that a capital gains tax, but in effect, it is what it ends up being. And so that's the issue is this alternative minimum tax to me, is just a way of saying we're going to introduce a brand new tax that you don't have terminology for and you don't understand. And so we are getting in the back door a little bit sneaky, in my opinion, um, so that the masses are not, you know, being reactive right away. But what is going to happen is by this fall, um, those details will show up and we'll know what that rate will be and how punitive it may be to wealthy families. And so one of the groups of families that we're most concerned about, of course, is our retired group, because they often do sell assets when they are trying to fund their retirement. You know, they sell maybe their primary home to, you know, buy a smaller home and then buy a recreational property. Well, all of a sudden, that's a deemed disposition. Are we going to have an alternative minimum tax on that kind of transaction? If they sell a bunch of shares, for example, to renovate their home, are we going to have a minimum tax that we didn't expect? And, you know, business owners specifically will be impacted because they do sell their business usually all at once. And so they're getting a very high um, tax return in valuation. And if the alternative minimum tax you know, is something like 50%, then what they thought they were going to pay 25% tax on, they're now paying 50 And so you can mm-hmm. see how dangerous um, not understanding the terminology can be. And I think there will be a new learning curve, unfortunately, for the population when they start to translate what does alternative minimum tax really mean compared to an increase in wealth tax or an increase in capital gains tax. How I look at it, Martin, is... When you increase taxes, you just increase taxes across the board. And so you can call it and label it any name you want, but that's just semantics. You're increasing taxes. Right, right. And I guess it's even more important. You mentioned people with businesses, and and I guess large and small, uh, they really could use some help with with navigating this um how important do you think it is for someone with a small business who is thinking about selling that business and retiring how important is it is it to really think about their estate planning well prior to the budget release a lot of people were saying maybe i should sell you know a lot of my stocks that have intrinsic gain in case they increase the tax rates well now all of a sudden we're still thinking in that particular light if you're a business owner because depending on how they employ Uh, the alternative minimum tax, if you were intending to sell your business, let's say, in 2023 or 2025, you know, what would the tax differential be on your disposition into the future with this new taxation coming into the pipeline compared to selling today? 
Right. So I, I'm suggesting to many families, you know, let's really sit down and look at your goals and objectives because if you were intending to sell sooner than later, you know, we, w- we would want to be giving a lot of consideration to a sale in this calendar year maybe instead of waiting until the alternative minimum tax is enacted because you may receive far less for the sale of that business than you would if you did it in this fiscal year. And so I think, you know, we do need to understand that when taxes increase every year um, that that increase comes into our retirement earlier has a long-term impact on us because we're living so long into retirement. We're living to 100 nowadays. And, you know, if you give up an extra 10% of your estate each calendar year, you're going to diminish your estate much more quickly. And so you do need to be looking at these things in a proactive way because Canada Revenue Agency is never generous in um, saying forgiveness to us if we didn't know we could, you know, minimize tax. We always have to do it proactively. We're talking to Sherry McMillan, the CEO of McMillan Estate Planning on Vancouver Consumer. And uh, I should point out this Wednesday, uh, they have a virtual seminar to get all your questions answered about estate planning. You can go to macmillanestate.com to sign up. There's one this Thursday, July 13th at 5.30 Pacific time. And uh, a couple more, one on the 27th of July. It's a Wednesday at 5.30 Pacific time. And then Wednesday, August 17th at 5.30 Pacific time. And uh, as I say, you can go to macmillanestate.com to register for those virtual seminars. And you can also give them a call, one 833 Two six six sixty four sixty four, And when we come back, we're going to talk uh, a little bit more about the latest budget and how some of the new terminology uh, is evolving and uh, we're going to have to learn it. And some of the things that are keeping Sherry McMillan up at night, uh, she has gone through every word of this budget and she and her team at McMillan Estate Planning Uh, Know the ins and outs of this budget and how you can navigate it and the new changes that are coming down the line. It's that and much more as Vancouver Consumer continues right after this. Welcome back. This is Martin Strong. Uh, We are talking estate planning with Sherry McMillan from McMillan Estate Planning. And if you have some questions that you would like answered uh, about your situation, maybe you're thinking about retiring, maybe you have a business uh, that you would uh, like to pass on, uh, just go to macmillanestate.com, their website, and you can sign up for one of their absolutely free virtual seminars. There's one coming up on Wednesday, July 13th at 5.30 p.m. There's also one on Wednesday, the 27th, also 5.30, and Wednesday, August 17th at 5.30. So just go to macmillanestate.com and you can sign up uh, for those virtual seminars. And Sherry, uh, we've talked a lot about this latest federal budget and how it's going to affect us in Canada And we'll talk more about it and how people can protect their assets. But first, I want to ask you kind of a general question about estate planning. You've worked with all sorts of people, those with just moderate wealth and those really up there in the stratosphere who have a lot of assets. So my question is, why should people, no matter what their level of wealth, why should they enlist the help of an estate planner? Well, I think... The driving force in my observation over the last few decades, Martin, is that families think initially they come in and say, you know, I don't want to forego and pay too much income tax. 
but actually, you know, within a very few few minutes, we uncover that actually that's not why they've come at all. It's the secondary reason. Uh, the primary reason families plan is they want their wealth to provide um, freedom to their family and choices. And they also want to enjoy that wealth and do a wealth transfer that honors their life's work without any discord because nobody ever wants to fight with their family about money. And this is one of the most common um, observations we all have in society is that we see families fall out over estates on an ongoing basis. And so actually the driving force for most families is they want to preserve harmony in their family unit. And so the only way you can do that is by being proactive and really understanding the personal family dynamics, who are the players, what kind of uh, individual circumstances are they facing, do we have a child that's going to go through a divorce, do we have a child that has an addiction, do we have a difficult in-law. We're all real people, and no matter how affluent we are, we face real-life circumstances, and so being proactive about how you design it from a functional standpoint in the family is equally as important on those soft issues as worrying about the income tax or worrying about the legal platform you're using. And so I think it it comes right down to the fact we love our families and the wealth we create is to share with them, and it's certainly not to fight over it. And so I think that's one of the main driving forces. Yeah, and it's so common, too. You see it all the time. As soon as money enters the thing, it becomes a, a complicated issue. And and I and that's why, you know, like good planning can, can save a lot of trouble. And that's what the Macmillan Estate Planning does. And if you go to their website, www.macmillanestate.com. And we've been talking about the budget and the changes in the budget. Uh, and some some of these changes are are buried deep in the budget with terminology that's kind of new and and trying to trying to navigate that is tough without help. And uh, you know one of the things uh, you've talked about is this so-called bank tax. Tell us about that. Yeah. So what what the government has chosen to do is to basically tax two industries that not many of us have a lot of sympathy for, to be honest. Um, We all feel like banks and insurance companies in Canada, you know, make millions and millions of dollars of profit. So there's not a lot of empathy or sympathy towards them. So what the government has chosen to do in this budget is basically create a recovery tax. It's a one-time tax on all income that the banks and insurance companies are making in the year 2021. And it's a 15% taxation, so it's not small. This is substantial um, lift that the government is going to collect in income tax. But let's not be um, naive about this. The banks and the insurance companies aren't going to weather that storm alone. They're going to downchain that cost and that expense to the consumer. So, you know, they will do things like increase interest rates on their borrowing. They will increase premiums on insurances. You know, they're not going to not make the same amount of profit. What they're going to do is spread that taxation out amongst all of us. And there's not too many of us that don't use a bank or don't use insurance. (laughs) And so it actually is a mass tax, if you think about it, practically speaking, It sounds good. It sounds like it's only going to be those two types of institutions. 
But at the end of the day, we all use those institutions, and so it's us going to be paying those taxes. Yeah, it's interesting how uh, the budgets are often about optics. And like you say, nobody has a lot of sympathy for the banks. But in actual fact, when that money sort of, when when the, the cost of that tax to the banks, you know, shifts down to consumers, that's a whole different story. So with, with those kind of political optics in mind, I mean, uh, a, a lot of the budget seems, you know, you know, like you say, going after the people who deserve to be taxed. Um, what can, um, keep, keeping that in mind, what can wealthy families, retirees, and small business owners do to protect their wealth and estates uh, in the future? Yeah, well, the two, the two main areas that we're really focusing on in 2022 um, is because the budget did not attack these areas, and so we want to make sure they're employed quickly in this calendar year for our families. The first one I, I like to talk about is when we're doing our investment planning, we actually have two institutions we can do it through. We can do it through the Bank Act of Canada, and of course this taxation we've just talked about will impact us. But we have an alternative in Canada, and that alternative is called trust law. And when we're doing our investment planning through trust law, we can actually command different benefits than we can in the banking system. And it's not a secret uh, trust is basically a protective stance or a fence around our assets that we're allowed to put in place. And wealthy families have used these for really thousands of years in Europe. And we have this opportunity in Canada. And when we use a trust to do our investment planning, even if we're buying things like stocks and mutual funds, what happens is the principle of our investment that we originally put in is guaranteed. And so we're not at the mercy of the markets in the same way, even if we are buying the markets. And we're also lawsuit in private and credit protected. So when we pass on, we don't have to transfer our wealth through the court system. And this is specifically important in BC because we have transfer tax in BC. And, you know, it's, it's substantial. It's about 1.4%. And we eliminate that entirely in trust planning. So one of the families um, that we more recently worked with, what we suggested is rather than, you know, having their mutual funds and GICs and RSPs all in the banking system, we shifted it to the trust system and we could eliminate literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of costs in their estate. So it's a really important opportunity. And thankfully, it wasn't um, addressed in the budget, which means we get to keep it. And so we may as well utilize it while we have this window of opportunity for sure. Just another reason I feel just listening to this, that this stuff can go over people's heads. And that's why they need somebody like Macmillan Estate Planning on their side. If you go to macmillanestate.com, you can get a lot more information about Macmillan. And they have a uh, virtual seminar. They they have a number of them coming up, but there's one this Thursday, or Wednesday rather, uh, Wednesday, July 13th at 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. And you can sign up for it. It's absolutely free. Just go to the website, macmillanestate.com. And you can, uh, you can be part of this virtual seminar on Wednesday at 5.30. They've also got one Wednesday, July 27th at 5.30 p.m. Uh, Pacific time, as usual, and Wednesday, August 17th, 5.30 Pacific time. Uh, and we are talking to uh, Sherry McMillan, the CEO 
of Macmillan Estate Planning. And now, Sherry, I want to ask you about the Maximum Tax Actuarial Reserve, which I just learned to say. Uh, It's a mouthful, uh, but what does the Maximum Tax Actuarial Reserve mean? Certainly. So, like an individual, we have the tax-free savings account that we have an ability to save some wealth without any income tax. When we're a company, we have the same thing, but it's called the maximum tax actuarial reserve, but I call it the giant tax-free savings account for companies. And it works the same, except it's much larger than the tax-free savings account. It's 25% of your net worth. So if you have a $10 million net worth, it means you can have $2.5 million if your wealth grow tax-free. And that's substantially more than the tax-free savings account. So many of us, um, when we're shifting into retirement or we have companies, uh, we aren't utilizing this privilege, and we should be, because it's such a wonderful opportunity for all of us as Canadians. Right. And uh, and those are the kind of questions. Uh, because you had a, a story about that, um, a couple who, yes. who uh, built up a lot of wealth in their company through the real estate that they, they had acquired, and you helped them with that. Yeah, and it was a, a very um, interesting story because the the eldest child was actually a lawyer and very business orientated, and uh, she wanted to succeed, you know, the business and carry it on. But the other child was much more social in their point of view and was actually working in social causes. So what we did is these were, you know, one family with two different types of children and two different goals. And so we used the maximum tax range to have 25% of the estate grow tax-free for the family. And that's what we used to buy out the child that didn't want to continue on in the family business themselves. And I think, you know, these are the types of creative things that can be done when you actually are proactive. So it's because we understood that each person and each child had their own goals and objectives and most siblings are individuals and end up wanting to, you know, pursue their own life course. So how do you bring that all together with the complexity of modern times and family business and assets in varying, you know, jurisdictions and children living no matter today all over the place? And, you know, by using these varying conversations and varying tools, you can find a solution But what sadly does happen, Martin, a lot of times is families don't have these conversations until someone has died. And then it's too late because conflict arises. And so I think um, these are wonderful tools we have in our toolkit, but it's important to sit down and explore which ones make the most sense. And Mm -hmm. usually there is a solution. So, you know, it's just a matter of having the discussion. And the first step is getting in touch with Macmillan Estate Planning. And as I've been saying, uh, they have a virtual seminar that you can join for free uh, this Wednesday, July 13th at 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, You can just go to macmillanestate.com to sign up for this virtual seminar and you can get all your questions answered. They've also got one coming up uh, Wednesday, July 27th 
at 5.30 p.m. and Wednesday, August 17th at 5.30. So just go to macmillanestate.com and get... get all your questions answered and you can sign up for that virtual seminar. Uh, Sherry McMillan, the CEO of McMillan Estate Planning has been our guest. I want to thank Sherry and this is Vancouver Consumer. Coming up, there are tons of breweries in BC, lots of local brew, some of the best in the world. So why are we in British Columbia drinking less beer? That story is next. Welcome back. I'm Martin Strong. And here's an interesting statistic when it comes to beer here in BC. Beer consumption in the province is the lowest in the country, but we have the third highest number of breweries. That's according to Beer Canada's latest report. Data from Beer Canada shows that the demand for beer in BC has decreased steadily over the years from 77.5 liters per person in 2015, to just under 65 liters per person per year in 2020. The national average for beer consumption in 2020 was 69.3 liters. So why the disconnect in a province where there is so much locally made beer to choose from? Why are we drinking less of the stuff? Some industry insiders think it's because there's just so much competition from other types of booze. Canned cocktails, for example. A lot of people love those. Cocktails already mixed and ready to drink straight from the can. They now make up more than 40% of canned product sales at uh, BC liquor stores. As well, there has been a huge increase in non-alcoholic options during and after the pandemic. We also may be uh, looking for drinks that are a little lighter than beer. And that's what the non-alcoholic options also have an advantage on. A typical can of beer, 150 to 200 calories. A can of non-alcoholic beer, 15 to 25 calories. Another factor, factor might just be that tastes are changing. James Sings is the manager of Five Roads Brewing in Steveston. And he told Vancouver is Awesome, the website, that the younger generation isn't really into the taste of beer and that they often now want something a little sweeter and not as bitter. But Sings says even those on the fence about beer can find something they like these days. There's lots of uh, little breweries doing weird stuff. He says their Kiwi Coconut Sour Beer is flying off the shelves. Another factor that might be leading us away from beer is price. The most recent consumer price index data shows the price of beer in BC went up 6.8% year over year in May, while liquor only increased 2.4% in the province. But despite the slowing numbers here in BC, we do love our beer. And we're often kind of snobby about it. Local breweries are still huge, with BC ranking third highest in terms of the number of breweries making the stuff. There are 230 breweries in BC chugging along at this very moment. And having such a choice allows us to choose products that sometimes are are made just down the street. And like they say, think globally but drink locally. Coming up, it's a look at uh, the world of Vancouver real estate with John Carlson. Also, some interesting stats from the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. That's coming up when Vancouver Consumer continues right after this. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKN 